buzzkills, the show that wants to razor wire the sexist football fans, threatening Taylor Swift because she dares support her boyfriend. I know. How dare she? I'm Liz Winstead, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mojiala O'Dale. Hello, buzzkills. Well, SCOTUS dropped the date of March 26th to hear oral arguments, and Ballas lawyers have already dropped an official brief to them saying, we thought it helpful to give you a list of the fact-free sewage that was used as evidence by the plaintiffs. Please and thank you. We will be laying out just what they told the court today. Plus, Project 2025. What is it and how can it affect your reproductive rights if an anti-abortion president is elected. We're going to break it down so you can see all the shenanigans available at the fingertips of the monsters who want the job of the highest person in the land. Plus, we got guests. And on today's show's researcher and author of Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood, Dr. Gretchen Sisson is here. And if that wasn't enough, comedian and content creator Dylan McKeever stops by to drop the funny. But first, we have some celebrating to do, Moji. You know, as an abolitionist, it is really tough for me. A prison abolitionist is really tough for me to want to celebrate this, but I just can't stop. I just can't stop. I know. It's very exciting. Um, For those of you who haven't heard the news, and that's mostly because heaven forbid somebody would report on something this big. On January 30th, a federal jury in Nashville found six anti-abortion extremists guilty of conspiring to violate the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act or the FACE Act for blockading a Nashville area clinic and intimidating patients and clinic employees. This is a huge deal because it is a federal offense and it comes with 11 years in prison and $250,000 fine. And of course, they're going to appeal it, but It's six people. And what's exciting is we have confronted these people. We have faced them off in various ways. But also, we were recording this invasion that they did. And we had been tracking their conversations around planning it. And we were able to take all of the intel we got and the footage that we got and turn it over to the clinic and to the security folks at the clinic to help them make the case and bring these shitheads to justice. It's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. Also, let's be honest, for decades, anti-abortion extremists have been out here doing clinic blockades with absolutely no, with impunity, with no pushback at all, with no real jail time, with no um, real charges. So this is super exciting. It is super exciting. And it comes on the heels of people in Washington, D.C., who were also found on federal charges for violating this act. Um, One of them... A woman named Heather Adoni was um, also at this clinic and she is now she's sitting right now, you know, in a holding because of now she's got two federal charges against federal charges. Sucks Mm -hmm. to be her. I think a lot of folks don't know. And the reason I'm so excited about this is we worked really hard. And a lot of folks, I don't think, know that part of our work at Abortion Access Front is tracking Um, collecting data and filming anti-abortion extremists so that uh, we can um, help people win these kind of cases. You know, we're not just comics and podcasters and jokesters and people with funny memes. (laughs) We actually, for some weird reason, found ourselves as people who were amassing an incredible database of anti-abortion extremists and then bringing the receipts so people can prosecute them. So yay us and yay justice. Yay justice. 
Yay, justice. Yay, us. We're about to embark on a really, really cool thing. So the actor Michael Shannon, you know, that Michael Shannon, hot Michael Shannon from George and Tammy. Also Empire. He's on tour with Jason Narducci, another great musician. And they're traveling the country uh, doing R.E.M.'s first album, Murmur, from cover to cover. I saw them on Seth Meyers and they sound incredible. And they've made a special poster, like a limited edition poster for this tour. And the proceeds of that poster are going to Abortion Access Front. And so I know it's very, very cool. And they're kicking off the tour. They kicked off the tour in San Francisco, um, did their first show last night. And they have a show tonight. And then I am on stage speaking about Abortion Access Front in Minneapolis on Sunday and we have various AEF staff speaking at certain events. We have Dukes in D.C. And me in New York on Valentine's Day. You want to hear me talk about AAF and, and on stage in New York? Come, please get a ticket. So get your tickets, get a poster to support your favorite buzzkills, and then come and talk to us because we'll be hanging out at the merch booth. So all of the information for that will be in our show notes. So make sure you do that and go see them, support abortion, have fun. So again, tonight in San Francisco at the Great American Music Hall, uh, Sunday night, February 4th in Minneapolis at First Avenue. And of course, again, we'll put the links in the show notes, where to get the tickets and go see Moji on Valentine's Day. And you can see Dukes in Philly and DC. It's going to be a riot. Lots of cities that you can go to. We are doing all the cool stuff, Liz. We're doing all the cool stuff. I know we're doing the most. So... We've talked about this and it's kind of really ramping up, but there is a documentary that's been made about Abortion Access Front. It's called No One Asked You and it premiered at NYC DocFest in November and it is now starting to make the festival circuit for real in 2024. And so first up February 9th, it's doing the San Francisco premiere at the Roxy Theater and I'm going to be there blabbing after the show and a talk back mm-hmm. with the filmmakers. And then it's just been announced it's going to be in Washington, D.C. at the end of the month and back in New York City. at the It's a lot. It's a lot going on. It's so cool. If you're in San Francisco, February 9th, I will be there uh, at the talk back and at the film. So come and we'll put a list of where it's been announced so far, where you can see it in the show notes. And we'll be posting on social all about it. So if you sign up, if you listen to the podcast or you're on our mailing list or you follow our socials, we will keep you abreast. But it is coming everywhere. So lots of stuff, lots of plugs. Wanted to do that. And last not least, before we get to our stories, Moji, hit it. We have our Patreon birthday shout outs. That's right. This is the first part of February, which means birthday shout outs to our Patreon pals. And in February, we only have one, um, two if you count me. So happy birthday month to Scott Good, who is great. I hope you have an awesome Aquarius season and thank you for your continued support. And happy birthday to Moji. When that comes up, we'll let you know that would be at the end of February 22nd. Whew, Liz. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. We have a lot get, to cover. Should we get to the story? Should we get to the news? Should we get to all the things? Let's do it. Well, you know, before Moji and I break down the stories that really got our panties in a wad this week, we're going to turn it over to Molly, who's going to sort through some of the biggest news that dropped into our laps. Thanks, friends. Welcome back to another steaming news dump. So you're going to want to sneak some whiskey in your sweet tea to make this one go down a little smoother. Three years ago, Mississippians lost the right to a ballot initiative process. Now, extremists in the legislature are bringing it back for the sole purpose of creating a ballot initiative that would ban 
abortion ballot initiatives. Yikes. Yeah, so it's uh, no surprise that the guys who don't want you participating in decisions about your own body also don't want you participating in democracy. Yeah, it tracks. Yeah, it really does track. <laughs> and it's giving petty tyrant scared of their own citizens. You know, it's giving little kid making up new rules on the spot because they don't want to lose. It's giving just you know, Mississippi. <laughs> if that left a bad taste in your mouth, don't worry. I've got a palate cleanser for you. Since 1982, Pennsylvania has had a bad law on the books that prevented Medicaid from being used to pay for abortion. Now, this week, the state Supreme Court ruled that shit unconstitutional because that's classic sex discrimination under the state's Equal Rights Amendment. I am so excited, pumped for the launch. Introducing new and improved Medicaid. Same great coverage, now with no added sexism. Yum. <laughs> I'd buy that. You don't have to because it's Medicaid. Now we're going to nightcap this dump with a nice glass of Burgoyne. We're crossing the pond and headed to France. And, you know, we're not sure that they've gotten control of their bedbug problem, but we do know that they're giving control of people's bodies back to their rightful owners. Oui, oui. Ooh la la. Voulez-vous coucher, c'est vous. Now, how are they doing this, you guys? By becoming the first country on the fucking planet to enshrine abortion rights in their constitution. And just who inspired them? You guessed it. We did. The trash fire of America. USA. USA. Now, all they had to do was look over here and see creepy drunk Uncle Sam being handy with our rights and just decide to do the exact opposite so we can rest easy at night knowing that our shit show is inspo. Back to you guys. Vive la France. Do I feel good about the inspo? I feel like it's the worst Pinterest board ever. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> What not to do, uh, uh, yeah, bodily autonomy vision. The anti-bodily autonomy vision board? Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's not have that vision board. But go France. Go Pennsylvania. Go France. And Mississippi, go straight to hell. Thanks, Molly. <laughs> Thanks, Mal. Well, Mo, are you ready to dive into the stories that we want to just, like, break open? Break wide open? Break wide open? Sure am. Why don't you set us off, Liz? All right. Well, as Mo just said at the top of the show, the Supreme Court announced March 26th is the day they plan on hearing the abortion pill case that could be the beginning of the end of Mifepristone as we know it. But nearly a day after that announcement, pro-abortion legal forces defending the drug sent this strongly worded letter to SCOTUS full of receipts that show all the junk science that the plaintiffs used in the sham court journey. And wow, oh wow. So basically... It was the Center for Reproductive Rights, the ACLU, and the Lawyering Project, three incredible legal organizations who fight all of the lawsuits to defend our abortion rights. What they did was they identified six shitty witnesses and then a bunch of shitty evidence they used and uh -huh. just laid it out for the courts. Now, I'm not going to lay out every single one of the six witnesses, but I just I highlighted a few just to give you a taste of the kind of people and evidence that were put forth to get a case all the way to the Supreme Court that could destroy abortion pills. It's amazing. So basically, this is a worst of the worst you're going to walk us through. I'm going to kind of the worst of the worst. The first one is this doctor named Donna Harrison, who is one of the plaintiffs in this abortion pill case. 
Uh, she is the executive director of an organization called APLOG, which, just so you know, any legit medical organization has its anti-abortion equivalent. They just, you know, because they co-opt everything, right? So there's ACOG, which is the American Academy of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It's like mm -hmm. the gold standard. So they are the American pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists. So just quack, quack doctors. Quackity, quack, quack, quack. So a couple of things. She has testified in cases before. And in two particular cases, there was one in North Dakota where she testified before the North Dakota Supreme Court. And a judge basically ruled that her opinions lacked scientific support and tended to be based on unsubstantiated concerns and were generally at odds with solid medical evidence. So she just sounds like a pro-life person. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if she's a doctor, <laughs> just like spouting off non-facts, right? And one patently false statement that she said in that case was patients who suffer from complications from chemical, they keep calling medication abortion chemical abortion. Abortions. So when I say so chemical weird. abortions, that's a made up pro-life term to make it sound like you're pouring battery acid onto your coach. From chemical abortions require more time and attention from providers than the typical OBGYN patient requires. I feel like anyone could refute that. That makes no 100%. sense. 100%. And also, it's not true. And her statement was cited several times by Judge Kazmarek, who was the district court, the first, first line in the Smithy case. And he ruled to ban the drug outright based on this kind of testimony. And the lawyers for these anti-abortion doctors who are arguing the Miffy case literally said to question Harrison's credibility is to ignore the countless people who come to rely on her knowledge and experience caring for women and their babies. And then he went on to say also the judge was pro-abortion. But also like <laughs> this is a case about whether or not abortion pills are safe. Right. Not whether or not somebody has delivered a bunch of babies. That's not the point. Or about someone's feelings, which I think is the wildest thing that it's gone this long because it's very much about some people's feelings. Exactly. So the thing about this person that I find the most egregious is that it was always sketchy about like where her practice was. Where does she practice her OBGYN gobbledygook? <laughs> and it turns out there was an, another Indiana abortion case filed in 2021. And within that case, it's revealed that she left private practice in the year 2000, which is the year that Mifepristone came on the market. <laughs> so did she even ever see patients who used Like once ever? Like, yeah, I don't think so. And also, if she retired from private practice in 2000 and probably has never seen a patient who used Mifepristone, why is she the executive director for the conglomerate of pro-life doctors? I mean, that just shows you how unserious <laughs> these people are. I mean, it means that you need ideology. You don't need expertise, right? We know that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. There's also Ingrid Scott, right? Ooh. A Florida court basically ruled that her testimony was inaccurate, overstated, and based on data from decades ago. 
Uh, and that same Florida trial court also said that she'd admitted that her views on abortion safety are out of step with mainstream medical organizations and provided no credible scientific basis for a disagreement with recognized high-level medical organizations in the United States. So essentially, they said she's going rogue. Also, this is in Florida. Where they have never met <laughs> medical quackery that they did not immediately Embrace. implement into law. Yes. Right? And yes. Moji, having said that, right, in the Mifepristone case, the one we're talking about now, the Fifth Circuit cited Scott and her views about the risks of the drug 17 times. Her discredited bullshit the court cited 17 times and relied into it. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Right. And before she was a hack witness in this abortion pill case, she was a hack witness for Republicans in Congress during these hearings they had right when Texas, before Roe fell, and Texas was the first one and they did the bounty hunting laws and they were the first day to sort of institute SB8. no abortion, SBA. She was the person who was the witness for conservative politicians. And she laid out so many lies. She laid out that medication abortion is inherently dangerous and that it resulted in numbers of complications, especially if it's self-managed. And yet in 2020, there was a study that found no test medication abortions, you know, provided anywhere via telemedicine or whatever are safe, effective and acceptable. But you know what? Who cares? Who cares about facts? She also facts don't matter, Liz. God. And then she went on to say that there's a lack of data regarding abortion complications, which is simply so not true that the OBGYN from Texas, who was sitting next to her, literally said, I want to go on record in this body under oath to remind people that a medical doctor can lose their license if they provide false information about medicine. And also it goes back to these kind of statements were presented throughout this Mifepristone case, right? So she batted out her bullshit before and she batted out her bullshit during the Miffy case and the judges, Kazmarek and then the Fifth Circuit were more than happy to lap it up. And then there was the studies, right? Because that was just two of the people. There's four other crackpots. Then there was the studies that were presented in the Mippy case. And this judge in Texas, they barked out this fake study about the mental health impacts of medication abortion. And they said, oh, my God, 77 percent of women. And I'm just not. They said chemical abortion. I'm sick of saying it. 77 percent of women who had a medication abortion reported negative change, and 38% of women reported issues with anxiety, depression, drug abuse, suicidal thoughts because of medication abortion. What is negative change? Not being pregnant? Exactly. Also, if you're not studying that people are showing up to abortion with societal th things that bring on drug abuse or, or anxiety or, or suicidal thoughts, you can't blame the abortion. It's ridiculous. Right. And then we find out this crazy study that I decided that 70% of women have gone incompetent because they've had abortions is from some website that examined 98 anonymous blog posts. 
between October 2007 and February 2018. So, and we all know that's been debunked. There is the National Academy of Sciences. There is the American Psychological Association. There's been numerous studies that have debunked any kind of mental health associations with abortion. We also know that uh, anonymous blog posts aren't held up as a peer-reviewed standard anywhere. There are no reviewed anything. It's a bunch of trolls (laughs) who can't even put their name to a thing. It's such garbage. The other study they pulled out of their ass is this emergency room study where it just clocked how many people who'd had abortions showed up in emergency rooms, basically conflating emergency department visits with like adverse events. So what I mean by that is they didn't look at like how many people showed up in emergency rooms because they don't have a clinic near them. They were just unclear that their abortion was working the way it should be. Oh, so they were just like, you showed up in an emergency room. That's a problem. Yes, that is that is a that is a tainted abortion. In fact, if they had listened and read what the FDA had presented, there was a massive study from 2015 that found major complications from medication abortion, meaning like hospital admission or surgery or blood transfusions. They occurred, this is unbelievable, less than 0.32% of the time. It's like so little, so So little. And they studied thousands of women who took Mifepristone and were hospitalized. Hospitalizations between 0% and 0.7%, serious infections between 0% and 0.2%, and cases of bleeding that required transfusions, zero and 0.5%. So, so less than 1% across the board. Yes. And this really robust study, the FDA presented in their evidence to Judge Kasmerick, to the Fifth Circuit, and to the Supreme Court, supposedly, when they hear the case in March. And I'm hoping, you know, with a little bit of hope anyway, that at least... Some of them read this to say, if you want a shred of credibility, and again, it goes back to what we talked about in last week's show, right? The Chevron deference, which I know you're going to talk about in your piece also, but like not paying attention to the actual experts and just going on and on is a mess. So I'm glad that our lawyers are on it and immediately dropped this like, hey, please look at facts when you're looking at this case, because this whole case was not argued on actual science. We'll see what happens. So. I mean, this case should not have happened. That's what got my panties in a twist. So take it away, Moja Pristone. It's a presidential election year, and every four years, the executive branch is up for grabs. Conservative think groups and anti-abortion radicals are coming together to further gut our rights, even the rights of those of us who think we live in a safe state. And worryingly, most of their plans don't even need congressional approval and can go into effect almost immediately upon the inauguration of a conservative president. And what I'm talking about, Liz, is Project 2025. And this this is just like blanketing all of my media in some ways. So the Heritage Foundation has written a Project 2025 presidential transition project, and it addresses all levels of our lives, like literally every single level. It's really comprehensive. It's almost like 900 pages. But since this is an abortion podcast, I'm just going to focus on the abortion part right now, if you don't mind. And so the Heritage Project, it's under their umbrella, but the who's who of hate groups are already on board. I'm talking about Stephen Miller, 
who is the architect of the family separation project at the border. I'm talking about Alliance Defending Freedom, who has probably been quietly referred to at least four times in this podcast already. Yeah, they are the lawyers in the Miffy case. Exactly. <laughs> Students for Life, who we love. Oh, we love them so much. And Moms for Liberty, a hate group that I spent entirely too much time with this month. And also dozens of other groups that are designated hate groups that you may or may not know by name, but it's a really huge list. These people are anti-LGBTQIA rights, anti-critical race theory, anti-women rights, anti-reproductive rights, anti-climate change, and pro-Christian hegemony. So they believe in something. <laughs> Yay! They only And also, you only have to be that because that encompasses all of what you're for. <laughs> it covers all the bases. It covers all the and so part of the overlying wish list in Project 2025 is to increase presidential power. And that means whatever conservative president comes into power, if a conservative president comes into power, they want to increase the executive branch's authority um, and they want to use that increase of authority to tamp down again on rights writ large, but specifically around abortion access across the country. And they don't even have to involve Congress. And with the right-wing judiciary on their side, who is always willing to rule with white ring causes, it's not even clear how we could fight back against this legally. And, you know, I'm sure they have, like, fast-tracked this shit watching citizens take control and create laws around weed and around abortion and other stuff that goes against their, uh, you know, pro-Christian hegemony. And so Basically. they got they they're trying to just get all their ducks in a row. And it's kind of astounding, Moji, how much executive power can strip away our rights and how little executive power can actually give us rights. We've seen that with abortion, right? Biden doesn't have a lot to work with to reinstate abortion rights, but man, does a president have power to take it away? Will you tell, like, what are some of the things that they can do? Oh, this is wild. So one thing they can do is they can enforce Comstock, right? Which is an act that's been on the federal books for entirely too long. What was it? 1948 is when it went into it? No, no, no. 18. 1840. The Grant administration. <laughs> Before the Civil War. <laughs> so they can take this act that is sat on the books and actually been kind of toothless in modern history, but they can use it to ban delivery of abortion pills, right? But also the medical instruments that are used in abortion care. And they can use this act to prosecute doctors and the patients. And because this is a federal law, it could just be used to eradicate state abortion right protections writ large. You can do it in California and New York because it's federal, and the punishment is five years in prison. They can also put an abortion gag order on who receives Title X funds. And we saw this in 2019. It caused about a quarter of organizations that provide contraceptive care to low-income Americans to just not accept the fund. And in some states, it meant that there were no Title X. And we watched, Moji, part of this, um, talked about it on the podcast before, right? Because Title X has been a volley constantly. Yeah. Funding Planned Parenthood, defunding Planned Parenthood, funding Planned Parenthood, defunding Planned Parenthood. And clinics can't stay open if they can't get their family planning money and if it depends on which administration is going to give it to them, right? And it also goes back to like all of the power that the Department of Health and Human Services has as far as like creating regulations and how much power they decide that the FDA will get to keep, which drugs they want to keep, the EPA, all that stuff. So it is really a pickle. And the fact that they are going through with a fine tooth comb to find every single way that they can take it away. And they're making up stuff too. Like to go back to health and human services, they're like, oh, we can increase abortion surveillance so we can require all states to report 
report the number of abortions, the resident of patients that perhaps travel for abortions, and the gestational age at the time of the procedure. And they can do all this again without having to go through Congress, without having to change any existing laws. That's right. Without our say at all. And I feel like I don't think we had these conversations enough. And now that I'm personally just learning about Chevron deference, and if that means that the government agencies are going to be stripped of their expertise, that each administration is going to not only install judges who get to weigh in with their opinions, they're going to install people who are running these government agencies who also have an ideology rather than expertise. And you cannot take the genie and put it back in the bottle. Once no. it's out, you're just fucked. We're all fucked. And I mean, we see it now in a, in a lower level, right? Every, you know, the, like something like the Mexico City policy, which comes and goes and comes and goes, depending on what kind of government we have, right? But I think that they're just digging a little deeper and they're just trying to make things a little more insidious and get rid of like career politicians or anyone who is in any way willing to fight against whatever this change might be. It's terrifying. Yeah, Mohi, it is really terrifying. And and we waxed on about the terror, but before we pop away from this, will you just run down like just some of the things that we're just experiencing? Absolutely. It would use the Federal Trade Commission to penalize and prosecute virtual clinics that prescribe abortion pills to people in states where abortion is banned. Um, they'd also withdraw Medicaid funds for states that require abortion to be covered by insurance and not allow life-saving abortion care at VA hospitals, which is something that Biden has been pushing for in the eradication of abortion care in many states. And they would not enforce EMTALA, which you may remember is the statute that makes it that people, when they come to a hospital needing life-saving care, need to be stabilized. And sometimes that stabilization includes abortion care. And they also would reinstate the Mexico City policy, and that is a policy that bans federal funds for international orgs who mention abortion. And this is one of the things that is volleyed from Republican president to Democratic president, and it really just changes as the administration so far. And it can be decimating for uh, care internationally because it's a gag order. So the question is, what can we do right now? We are a 501c3, and we cannot tell you how to vote, and we would not but you can read about the plans in Project 2025, not just around abortion, but all of the comprehensive plans they have on their website, and we'll include a link to it. Um, and then vote with your values and what is important. Um, and also, I just want to remind you, you know, presidential elections are very sexy. They're marquee events, but also local elections are super, super important and and I love to remind people that we lost Roe because the Mississippi legislature wrote an unconstitutional law and took that law all the way to the Supreme Court. So these laws that are written in states can move through the country and affect all of us. So you got to vote. Please vote. I mean, when people try to make conflations around things, it's it's pretty devastating for those of us who sacrifice Pretty much everything. Time with our families, time with our friends to make sure people's rights are somehow we're, we're able to get them abortions that they need. And this is not a path forward. It is not. This is not an alternative. Uh, we don't have a third party candidate that will save us. And a third party candidate couldn't save us because we don't have third party members in the House and the Senate. Right. So because we don't have any of those three things, we can't rely on that. Yep, that's exactly right. 
Just remember that you're not voting for perfect. You're voting for the person that you will commit to putting pressure on for them to help create your values. That is it. Yeah. So all these stories, Molly stories, our stories will be in the show notes. And you can find the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding your care on our website, aafront.org. Our Charlie chatbot on the bottom right will walk anyone, anywhere in the country through their options and resources for abortion care. All right. Shall we talk to our first guest, Liz? We have a doctor. Yeah, we do. We have a doctor. Joining us is Dr. Gretchen Sisson. She's a qualitative sociologist studying abortion and adoption at the University of California, San Francisco. Her book, Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood, will be released at the end of February. Hi, Gretchen. Hi, Gretchen. Thank you for being here. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited you're here. You and I met years ago when you were doing uh, culture work at Advancing New Standards and Reproductive Health, which we will probably revert to that a lot, the acronym ANSWER. And now your partner, uh, Steph Harold, who you have um, turned the reins over to, have done some incredible work just monitoring how abortion is portrayed in pop culture. So before we get to your new adventure, I just want to talk a little bit about, which we think is also important too, is how abortion is framed in the largest spaces that people take in information, even if that's entertainment. I mean, I think that uh, we often forget as academics that we can put years into a journal article and it can go out in the world and it can have tremendous policy weight and be a major uh, contribution to the, the, the academic conversation. And on the other hand, I can talk to the writers from Grey's Anatomy and two weeks later, 7 million people are, are watching what we talked about. And so I think that, you know, as someone at a research institution, recognizing the power that pop culture has to shape people's understandings on abortion is really important. And that's been a really fun part of my career to get to look at that. Um, and I always say, because abortion is so stigmatized, because a lot of people are really silent about their abortion stories, the stories of fictional characters carry a lot of weight in how people understand abortion, its safety, who needs abortions, what care looks like, who providers are. And so I've been excited to, to get to work on and collaborate with the writer's rooms on, on some of those story arcs that we've seen. And I'm excited that they're reaching out to the right people. Basically, I'm always thrilled to talk with them, too. But I also say, like, I'm also happy to be a matchmaker. Like, you need to talk to a provider in Michigan or a lawyer in Seattle to make sure that you're getting uh, these these stories where they need to be, like, happy to connect with other folks in the movement. I also remind them, like, accuracy is important when it comes to certain things like medical risk. But you also have to tell the story, right? And making sure that you're telling a story that's a meaningful contribution uh, when so many stories go untold and so many people are, are you know, stigmatized in this space, you know. So, so it's not always about just like making sure their exact details are precisely accurate. It's often just about what stories are missing from our culture and how can we bring more of those out. So important. And Let's talk about your book, Relinquished, and it's the culmination of a decades-long study of adoption in the age of Roe, which we've passed, and analyzes hundreds of interviews with American mothers who place their children up for domestic adoption. So can you tell us about your book and your research at UCSF, and what was your process writing it? 
Yeah, we've got a lot of acronyms floating around between UCSF <laughs> and ANSWER. And uh, yeah, <laughs> this book really came out of both my work in the abortion space and my work with um, young mothers, so teen moms, um, early in my career when I was still in graduate school, and really seeing the ways that adoption had this rhetorical framing that made it this panacea, right? We don't need access to abortion if we have adoption. We don't need to support young families, vulnerable families, poor families, if there's access to adoption. We don't need to worry about, you know, finding solutions for people who need infertility treatments if there's adoption, right? We can, this is, it was sort of this way of saying we did not need to make public or collective investments in people's health and well-being and families um, if we can just transfer babies from one family to another. And I think that that is what kind of brought me to the space of really wanting to look at adoption as a reproductive justice issue. And so I started doing this data collection when I was still in graduate school and then worked uh, on the turnaway study with my colleague, Diana Green Foster, who I'm, I'm sure um, you all know who ran the turnaway study and looked at people who were denied access to the abortion care that they wanted. The turnaway study is, is massive and, and impressive and my colleagues are, are all brilliant. I carved out like this one little layer. I was like, I'll take the adoption piece and kind of looked at, first of all, who uh, among those people denied abortion, chose to relinquish for adoption, why, um, what their lives looked like. And then I did some more follow-up interviews in 2020, looking at the 10-year the follow-up for the woman that I originally interviewed when I was in graduate school to see how adoption was still serving them. So why hadn't they had abortions? Uh, how did they feel about their adoptions over time? What were their relationships with their children still like? So to me, it really does feel like a part of our reproductive rights and justice conversations that's often missing. I feel a tremendous amount of, of privilege to be able to tell their stories. You know, one thing that we hear over and over again and you touched on it is is sort of that the notion that adoption is the alternative to abortion and we often talk and believe that adoption is can actually be the alternative to parenting instead of saying it that way and i and i just hardly ever hear that framing and i'd love to hear your thoughts on that kind of framing and other big issues you think that are missing from the current conversation when it comes to abortion and adoption so abortion and adoption were rarely weighed against each other um, when these mothers were making pregnancy decisions. So they were not deciding, should I have an abortion or, or should I relinquish my baby, right? What they are deciding between is always one or the other and, and parenting, right? And most of the mothers I interviewed wanted to parent. They continued their pregnancies with the intention of parenting. Um, most of them did not try to get abortions, were not interested in having abortions. They continued their pregnancy because they wanted to raise another child. And they got to a point in their pregnancy where they were facing a crisis, right? They didn't get that job. They didn't find a safe apartment. They were still with their crappy boyfriend who was not supportive. Um, their own parents kicked them out of the house or you know, whatever, whatever social safety net that they had had in their within their networks or whatever financial resources that they were hoping to gain, none of that kind of came together for them. And they got to a point in their pregnancy where adoption really became this lifeline. That is a narrative we never hear. Never. Ever. I feel like the desperation that you are sort of implying here is something we never hear. I think it's really important. And, and that's why I say like we... We often think about adoption from the side of adoptive families and adoptive parents, right? And the families that are built 
from adoption. We rarely think about the families that are separated by adoption and what it takes to get to that breaking point. And a lot of times reporters will ask me like, oh, well, why aren't more women interested in adoption? Why don't they choose adoption over abortion? And the really shocking answer is, oh, women actually don't want to give away their children if they don't have to. Right. (laughs) And then sometimes I'll get a male reporter who will be like, oh, but why? And I'm like, well, you know, would you, would you want to give away your kids? Um, and, And imagine what it takes to get to that point to sign away your own parental rights. And I usually say, Um, It's about survival. So if they don't have access to safe place to raise their child or they don't have access to the financial resources they need to raise their child in order to survive as a family, um, that's the first breaking point or their salvation. So a lot of these women, particularly women who were younger, were deeply involved in the evangelical church, some of them in the anti-abortion movement, and they believe that they have committed a sin by becoming pregnant, usually, I mean, almost always outside of the context of marriage. Right. Um, And so it's about the survival question or the salvation question. And those are almost always you need to have one or the other or both in order to separate a mother from her child. You know, Gretchen, as you speak of this, something that just occurred to me, a this framing of somebody hoping that these things will happen and with full intention of keeping their children. I have to ask then you did a decade long study. How do then these fake clinics weigh in that promise so much to these very, very mothers you're talking about, right? We'll help you. We'll help you parent. We'll provide. We'll guide you. Did they have experiences with fake clinics on this journey and were let down or did they not even know to go to them? Or I would just like to know how they factored in because it seems like they would. Oh, for sure. Actually, can I can I read a quick quote from one of my interviews? Please. So this is uh, this is Taylor. She is 19 years old. Took a bunch of home pregnancy tests. They're all positive, but of course she wants you know more more confirmation. So she goes to a Planned Parenthood for a pregnancy test. They couldn't see her that day, but she was pleasantly surprised to find a clinic across the street. Right. So this is this is Taylor's account. At first, I didn't suspect anything. We did the pregnancy test, all of that. Then they started asking me really weird questions, like if I was going to get married, and I was like, no, that's dumb. I'm not going to get married. I would rather raise a child as a single parent than in an unhappy marriage. Then they gave me a pamphlet on how birth control will kill you. It had all the birth controls laid out and said, oh, this causes stroke and this causes a side effect. And I was like, well, that's false, but okay. And then I saw a poster on the wall with information about abortion and how that will definitely kill you. I remember clearly because I took a picture of it with my phone because it was so absurd. It said that like 75% of women die after having an abortion. And then I finally realized that I was at an anti-abortion clinic and I thought, great, I need to get out of here before they realize I'm opposed to everything that they're about. So I ended up getting the information that I needed, the confirmation of pregnancy to get signed up for WIC and Medicaid, and then I left. But Taylor wasn't interested in having an abortion anyway. Even though she described herself as very pro-choice and even though it was an unplanned pregnancy, she felt bonded to the pregnancy right away. She dreamt of her baby early on and she pictured going back to online school with a little girl in the balancer beside her. She knew that parenting would be a lot of work, especially without a steady income or a trustworthy boyfriend. When she Googled help for single moms in her home state, she was flooded with ads for adoption agencies. Curious, she clicked on the ads for more details and was soon mesmerized by the compelling profiles of waiting families with their suburban homes, stay-at-home moms, extended families, graduate degrees, and disposable income. Things were getting harder and harder for Taylor. She was so desperately sick during her pregnancy that she had to quit her job. 
She sold her car to buy a plane ticket to move across the country to live with her mom, but then she'd spiral into anxiety about her how her only available car was her stepfather's pickup truck with no space for an infant's car seat. I remember spending all night one night just throwing up, wishing that my pregnancy would be over, which I thought made me a terrible mom, and obsessing over the fact that I had no way to even get the baby home from the hospital. Even though she wished to parent, the idea of adoption became a lifeline for her. So I think that this is really interesting, right? Because she goes to the clinic. She just wants the pregnancy test. Like she kind of recognizes it right away for what it is. But even though she's not interested at all in what they're offering her, she kind of soon connects these ideas about adoption. And um, a lot of crisis pregnancy centers do have relationships with adoption agencies. They will certainly do referrals for adoption agencies. And a lot of adoption agencies have crisis pregnancy outreach. So as I talked about in the book, a lot of adoption agencies will geofence abortion clinics. So if you have your phone and you go into an abortion clinic, um, you'll start getting ads for adoption agencies. And it's not just abortion clinics, methadone clinics, uh, WIC centers, uh, other social support services, mental health institutions. And so they're really acutely targeting women who are in really vulnerable places at the time of their pregnancy with adoption information. And there's a large overlap between that and crisis pregnancy centers for sure. They sound like vultures. It sounds so insidious. Oh, wow. Yeah, yes. I, <laughs> I'm pretty critical of this, obviously. I think one other kind of myth that we have about adoption is that there are so many babies out there that need good homes, right? And what we don't realize is that there is a massive amount of demand for adoption. Um, there are about 45 waiting families for every infant that's relinquished for private adoption. And so you have a huge amount of demand. You have really low supply of babies. And you have these agencies that are obviously trying to facilitate adoptions. Um, and so they have to be really aggressive in their marketing if they have any intention of serving their clients. You know, the number one expense for most adoption agencies is marketing, is Google ads. That's the large part of the expense of adoption. And, you know, pre-Dobbs, and it, it's actually still unclear kind of what the impact of Dobbs has been on this space because we just don't have good data. But pre-Dobbs, a lot of smaller independent adoption agencies were closing because there simply weren't enough babies. Bethany Christian Services, one of, if not the largest adoption agency in this country, had stopped accepting applicants from parents because they just said, we don't have enough babies. We don't need any more prospective parents. So you have this system, again, demand very high, supply very low, and it makes it pretty aggressive as far as marketing and getting out the word to pregnant people who might be in a vulnerable place and considering this. Well, have you been able to interview any prospective adopters or um, mothers after Dobbs' decision? Like, do So you don't know what the shift looks like, or do you? I think it's actually really complicated. And I actually think one of the biggest complicating factors was the child tax credit, right? That we lost jobs at a time that a lot of families still had access to the child tax credit. Because when I interview these mothers, when they say they need more resources, things like the, you know, the expansion of the child tax credit, that can be enough to keep the family together, right? If they feel like they are in a more sustainable place. Um, and so I think that the fact that we lost Roe at the same time that we had an expanded child tax credit, like, I don't think they totally cancel each other out, but I think you have a lot of policy decisions that are going in into how people actually are making these decisions. So it kind of proves your point that if parents had, if pregnant people who were in some sort of crisis just had a little bit more support, we would see a lot more people able to keep their families intact. 
Oh, it's so little. I mean, the highest number I heard when I was like, okay, well, you know, you're, you're telling me that you couldn't parent because you didn't have enough money, basically. How much would you have needed to parent? And the the highest number I ever heard was $5,000, right? Most of them are are in the one to $2,000 range because it's not that they need enough for childcare for a year. They just need enough for a car seat, right. a car, a you know, security deposit on a new safe apartment, right? They just need to get through maybe like a baby coat yeah right yeah and again these are the things that crisis pregnancy centers promise they will offer people and then we hear time and time again they don't and it's it's maddening so Gretchen I I just want to clear up if I understood you correctly within your research did you find that most of the people were intending to parent until crisis happened or was that just a a, a certain amount of people. And then I'm sure you came across all sorts of people who were t- having circumstances, yeah. right? So I, if that's the case, then I guess I wanted to ask of the people that considered abortion and then decided to carry the pregnancies and relinquish, was there any reasons that you found that you hadn't heard before that you found new other than economic issues? For for not parenting after they wanted to, you mean? For people that decided to not choose abortion. Again, m- most of them just ruled out abortion. They weren't interested in abortion. Most women who did consider abortion or want an abortion, it isn't that they decided against it. It's that they couldn't get one. And, and that's, the, that's the turnaway scenario. So they couldn't get one because they couldn't afford it. They didn't know where to go to get one. Um, a meaningful number actually found out that they were pregnant fairly late in their pregnancy. So they're like, well, maybe I would have tried to get an abortion two months ago, but now I'm 22 weeks pregnant and that they, maybe they weren't comfortable with that, or they, it was going to be too much more expensive at, at that point, or they just didn't have a provider that would do it for some of them that were really quite far along. But the theme of, I am thinking about getting an abortion. Now I've decided not to get an abortion and I, and I'm going to choose a do- that was extremely like I can't think of a really salient that's made up by the anti-abortion activists it was usually I want to get an abortion I can't get an abortion now this is kind of the only choice that I feel I have left or it was I'm going to parent I'm continuing my pregnancy with the intention of parenting and and now that's not working either Gretchen we have to wrap up but one thing I I'd love to just have you touch on um, briefly, if you could, is as you compiled and wrote this book and talked to all these people, what is something that people need to know from this book? What is something that this book will give them that maybe will hit them and get them thinking in a new way? I would just like it if, um, you know, my fellow progressives could think about, again, the families that are separated by adoption, as well as the families that are created by adoption. And what we as as people who are interested in and committed to reproductive justice, what we owe those families, and what it would mean to actually radically support people in supporting those families and keeping those families together. That is awesome. I cannot wait for your book to drop. Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about it. It's wonderful work that you do. Thank you. Thanks so much. Relinquished is out February 27th and will be available at all major booksellers. Or you can pre-order it now at relinquishedbook.com. Okay, it's time for the party game that is faster than Monopoly and more fun than Taboo. It's Six Degrees of Abortion. This is the game where Moji takes a story from the news that is seemingly not about abortion. (laughs) And I have six chances to link it to abortion. Let's see 
if she can stump me this week. What do you got, Moj? So my socials that are not about Project 2025 or abortion um, or the increasing humanitarian catastrophes in this world have been about Megan Thee Stallion and Nicki Minaj going at it on competing diss tracks. And so I would like you to link abortion to Megan the Stallion, I'm Team Meg, in six steps or more. Well, I think the beef with Nicki Minaj does it because Nicki Minaj talked about her abortion uh, in, was it Vogue magazine? There was a massive article on Nicki Minaj in like 2020 where Nicki Minaj talked about her own abortion. I know you probably think I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry to make it so fast. I love it when it's fast. You are absolutely right. Like it's been interesting. I've been sort of following this whole thing too, and nobody cares about my opinion as a white lady. But um, I am on Team Megan. Also, it just also seems the whole thing just seems I don't know. I just hate public feuding of yeah. people. But yeah, I'm on Team Megan too because I'm impressed. I didn't expect you'd get it done so fast. Also, I, I'm shocked that I missed Nick's abortion story. That's yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fresh. I mean, truthfully, I believe that those are two women who are pro-choice. So I didn't think it would be super difficult, but I didn't know it directly. I love that. What's the connection? Um, their feud. Their feud's the connection. <laughs> I hate to bring it to you. I love it. Uh, well, let me introduce our next guest, Liz. Yes, let's get to some fun because, wow, have we been dark this episode. <laughs> you know, this is not the uplifting podcast that you want to listen to all the time. You know, Molly gave us some funny this time. She gave us some good yeah. laughs. But let's move to France. That's what I, my takeaway. Let's move to France. Our next guest is Dylan McKeever. She is a content creator and comedian based in San Francisco, California, and her IG is hilarious. Let's hear a clip. Welcome to Queer You, where I teach queers things they might not know about. Today's word is monogamy. Monogamy is a relationship with only one partner at a time. That means two people would only date each other. Now you might be thinking, what the hell? Should I alert the polycule? What do I do with my extra copies of The Ethical Slut? But I'm already helping my metamorph build a catio. Who will I condescendingly explain the concept of compersion to? That's the thing. You won't have to do any of those things if you're monogamous. I know it sounds crazy, but a lot of people find monogamy very fulfilling. You don't have to do it, but I thought you should know it exists. Until next time, this is Queer You. <laughs> Please welcome Dylan McKeever. Hi, Dylan. Hi, Dylan. Hey, hey guys, how's it going? Good. Thank you for the education on people who think monogamy is actually fun. Yeah, well, the approach is supposed to be actually the opposite of that. <laughs> and I do that because everyone in the queer community is open or poly or ENM. And it's become frustrating, I think. At least for me, it's gone too far the other way. And it's a mess. Maybe it's time to learn new concepts like monogamy. Like, hey, <laughs> you imagine just two people loving each other and that's it i know it's a wild concept it's wild to me it played both ways because you're introducing this concept to the queer community to be like hey there's this thing that people do where there's just the two of them and nothing else but then also it's like hey monogamous people there's this thing you do that's just the two of you that sometimes isn't just the greatest thing to be part of <laughs> totally yeah you can come in from either either direction <laughs> 
I think I feel like I saw some article that recently that was like talking about how even straight couples now it's something like forty something percent don't uh, describe themselves as monogamous anymore. Yeah, I think monogamy is on the outs right now in general. I think that people are not fully into it publicly. Right. Maybe privately people are doing that thing, but I think publicly it's um it's not as hot and sexy as like abortion and weed. You know what I mean? Right, right. Not so hot. But I guess as someone who's been in the world of queer poly life, it's also, it's not great on the other side either. You know, it's kind of, it's it's a, it's often a mess. There's often a lot of, uh, you know, poor communication and broken hearts and... Oh, that just sounds like relationships, Dylan. That just right. sounds like relationships. We're just, we're all in a relationship, aren't we? <laughs> I dated a poly guy once and I was like happy because he was a lot younger than me and I was just like, wanted to be in bed by nine. I would always be like, all I ask is that you're on time. We have to be done eating and done fucking by a certain time because I'm just exhausted by the whole thing. And you're being laid all the time is rude. Like, oh my God. It's like too much. How'd that work out for you, Liz? I mean, it was fine. He was, you know, I just had to keep moving the goalpost earlier. So it was literally like Applebee's early breakfast. You know, it's like, all right, come for the 4.30 dinner. Stay for the six <laughs> o'clock sex and you're out by eight. What was the age difference? Can I ask? Yeah, 20 years. Wow. Oh, yeah. how sexy, Liz. Well, yeah. you know, honestly, it was really nice to be in my sexual prime in my late 40s and to have a dude in his 30s who was just like into it and I'm into it. It was just fun, except for the late part. Yeah, I could see that mostly working <laughs> out. I feel like yeah. As long as they're past their Saturn return, you know? I mean, if you're dating somebody between those ages, you are just asking for heartbreak. I also tend to date younger people and it's a mess and I don't know what I'm doing, but it's who I end up with somehow. I think I think it's because so many Gen Zers are like openly queer. So it's like one in four or something, one in three. So I end yeah. up, there's just like more of a dating pool there than there are, than in my generation. Also, you really give like super youthful vibes. So I feel thanks, like also thanks, they're probably thanks. like smelling the vibes and they're like, that's what we want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had some of them describe me as it. They're like, you seem young, but you know, you also have to go to bed at you know, 830. <laughs> so <laughs> I actually, you do seem young and also like, because I feel like I've spent so much time on your Instagram. Your vibe is like really cheerful, even when you're talking about things like intersex the way intersex people are treated or like black lives matter so like how do you come up with ways to address content that could be challenging while educating people and keeping it fun is this part of your cheerful vibe yeah i guess so um you know i i feel like i feel like i don't, I don't know where it comes from because i feel like my heart is dark and you know like i love uh just dwelling on the the darkness of the world and then somehow i don't know what filter happens but it just comes out as being like positive and cheerful I guess maybe I I think also the contrast helps where I'm like talking about dark stuff with this sort of like upbeat tone that's comedy baby you know, I don't know. it's true and I often feel that I don't know how people take in so much of this shitstorm of a world without an outlet with which to give it context to folks you know to be able to have that gift to take it in and then bring it out to people. It's a catharsis for you. And it's also super helpful for other people who oftentimes just, you know, your fans and your followers, they're taking it in and they rely on you to like 
barf out their id in a weird way and it can be really fun but also how much pressure do you feel now that you've sort of set yourself up as this person who can talk to people about hard subjects like all of a sudden and I'm going to put air quotes all over the place because I hate this word but there's a responsibility right all of a sudden people are counting on you how does that pressure feel it feels like a lot I think I will I think at least I need to have time to like process and like grieve things before even approaching topics like I recently did a fundraiser for Palestine and I was like going in being like I can't I don't even know how to write jokes about this it's so it's so rough it's so depressing but then you know I kind of like just like went there where I'm like well I'll just talk about how awful it feels you know I was able to like create camaraderie with the people that were there and yeah it sort of worked that way just sort of like going into the feeling also I think people respond to honesty right so if you're just like ah this feels shitty and like don't you think this feels shitty? Then I think people can fully get it in. Like, yeah, we can all agree on that. Now let's tell some jokes. Yeah, yeah. So who do you turn to for your catharsis? You're providing it for others. Whose feeds, whose streams, what comics are you like, I can't wait to hear what so-and-so has to say. And even if it's not poignant, like where do you go for your like, your exhale? I mean, I love Michelle Buteau, Mm -hmm. New York comedian. I think she's great. She has such a like, also like a very like uplifting vibe even though like you know she's been through a lot and it's sort of like an older comedian I don't know I I like dwell in like dark stuff and then you know I like I hear Michelle and I'm like okay this is great she has a great podcast um called Insulting that just came back what else I watch, I watch like a lot of political comedy shows that are really fun I really like Seth Meyers Corrections and it's sort of like a lighter side of the political comedy scene I guess do you fully detach ever because um I rarely fully detach because it's not where I find my peace. I feel more upset if I'm detached. So do you, can you fully pull out? I, I try. I don't know. <laughs> I try. <laughs> um, I try to, I've been trying to meditate more, you know, this year. Oh, how's that going? I mean, I just do like 10 minutes a day, but sometimes I don't know if it's good. I feel like it's always supposed to be good, right? It's always supposed to be good to meditate, but sometimes I feel like I'm just like avoiding confronting feelings. Mutual things, because that's sometimes how I feel when I'm meditating as well. I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, my therapist said just do five, 10 minutes of breathing. And then sometimes I do it and I'm like, I'm not, I guess that maybe it helped. It didn't hurt. There's that. It didn't hurt, right? (laughs) Right, right, right. But sometimes I'm like, I feel like I'm just avoiding something, you know? I'm just like, I've just got to clock out for a second. It's kind of like the same with sleeping, you know, where I'm like, I'm shutting off for a, for a while. So I don't have to think about these other things. <laughs> I can unplug from the news for, for like a weekend, but like, that's like it. I'm like, oh yeah, I had a weekend and I refreshed. And then of course, because we work in abortion, terrible things yeah. always happen when I unplug. I'm like, I plug back in and I'm like, oh my gosh, Idaho did what? Yeah, how are you? How are you guys doing? How are you? <laughs> how are you holding up? You know, I think we hold up because we were so immersed in giving people information, helping people who need to be navigated towards getting procedures, helping out clinics. I feel like we're lucky in that we have so many avenues to with which to bring people help and light. And then also we get to just drag assholes for filth. And so it's the combo platter of joy where it's like, how do I get paid to help people with their bodily autonomy and then also drag assholes for filth. Yeah. How, how does that job come about? Oh, I know. I'll make it. <laughs> I'll just make it. Yeah. I, I hear that. There's some hope and joy and some schadenfreude in there. And also just giving somebody a call to action. You know, sometimes I think 
I often say it can be um, unhealthy just to be an anger fluffer. You know, if you get people all riled up and then you get them to a point where like, I'm so pissed. What am I supposed to do? And that's like, I don't know. I'm just the person that got you pissed. Like that is just not a good role. So I think to be able to say, and here's a dope organization you can work with, or here's an action we're doing, or here's something that's going to make 10 people's lives better right now. And you can do it from the chair you're sitting in. You know, it's it's nice to be able to meet people where they are with the capacities that they have. I, it reminds me of um, when John Stewart was quoting The Daily Show for the first time. He had some quote where he was talking about how nothing he did was as important as like what actual activists do. And I was like, that really stuck with me. I'm like, oh, it's like, the action is like really where it's at and the activism, especially, you know, for someone who like looked up to, to so much where it's like comedy is only is just conversation. Mm -hmm. And then taking that next action is like the real where the real work happens. So you started doing stand up just before we went into the pandemic. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. End of 2019 is like one of my first shows. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, well, I guess I'm done here. But then I started making videos online and that kind of took off. And then I've been in and out of stand up through the pandemic. I'm coming back now in a stronger way. Yeah. And how did it feel? Because I often like to say everybody's about 20% weirder after the pandemic. And so going into stand up pre pandemic, you know, just starting to get your sea legs live, then going through the pandemic, then coming back out to get back on stage. How are you? changed and how is it different i i mean i still feel so new i still but although you know this is something i've heard from very seasoned comics is just like trying out new jokes always feels like you're doing it for the first time and that you have no idea what you're doing and that's fine so i gotta just remember that where i'm like okay these other comedians say the same exact thing where it's like i'm trying a new opener and it might not go well and it, you know i feel like i don't know what i'm doing then you run it enough times and you find the laughs and it it works out. So I, th I don't think that feeling is ever going to go away of just being like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I, I am just like a novice forever. But I don't know. What do they talk about? Beginner's mind? Maybe that's a good thing. Oh, you're back to meditation. Oh, that's cute. Um, We're taking right us back, back to meditation. Yes. <laughs> that's hilarious. What's the goal? What's the dream? As you are on this journey and you're experimenting with all of these mediums and with comedy, when you see yourself in five years, where would you say, if I could plant my flag here, I will feel like I am doing the most? Um, I mean, I would love to write for shows or, you know, preferably like a queer show and act in things and just have enough money to not be in a constant state of anxiety and desperation. You know what I mean? Yes. Is that possible for an artist? I'm not sure, but... I mean, I, I gotta keep believing it is. I think that it is. It feels hard right now, especially like you're coming into this. And it's interesting because I've been doing this for 40 years and you're coming into it. Pandemic, writer's strike, like being positive when everything seems so tenuous is hard. But I also feel too, I always say this to folks, take the opportunity to learn all of the tools given to you so that your creative autonomy is yours. If you don't know how to do graphic design, make sure you know how editing all of it, because then you are just creating your own reality that somebody will eventually see and you'll just start going. Like every woman I know has, who is successful, did it because they created a thing for themselves that somebody else noticed. It was never they walked into a network executive's office and said, hi, I'm here. <laughs> They're like, yeah, and your point. 
They've never, you know, it's always bringing something that's already thought out. So, and you're just such a genius that I just see giant things for you. Oh, that's so nice to hear. I simply have to create my own universe. So just step, step one. <laughs> no, but I hear that. I hear that. I get the point though. This reminds me of uh, what Carl Sagan talk about. If you want to make an apple pie first, you have to create the universe. Yeah. I don't think I know that quote. Oh, just a, you know, step one, create the universe. <laughs> okay, Dylan. And finally, what's the most basic thing about you? As I was talking about, I've been dating a lot of like younger people, like Gen Z, Zillennials. And I was dating someone, we we're going out. I pulled up my phone to look at the weather app to see if I needed like a jacket or something. And they were like, what are you doing? Like, why do you, you're looking at the weather app? Like, what, do you, what is that? Is that like an old people thing? And I was just like, what? What? Oh. Like, yeah. And they and they kept, they kept bringing it up because I kept doing it. You know, because whenever we'd go out, I'd be like, I'm going to check, see if it's going to rain or something. And they were like, the weather app? So I think that might be, that might be <laughs> a basic thing now or like a basic oh my God. old person thing. It's an old person thing. That's Bring great. a coat is now you're out of touch if you would like to stay warm. That is yeah. that. Okay, Boomer, you and your umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> you and you're just checking how hot it's going to be. I don't know. Do you guys check the weather app? All, All the time. The time constantly. <laughs> yes. I didn't know until this moment how basic that was. <laughs> I didn't either. Or I've gotten worse. I'll just lay in my bed and yell at Google. And so it will tell me what the weather is like. It's just like, why bother look at your phone if you can just yell into the sky and you might, might as well be shaking my fist. Mm -hmm. I might as well just add to the whole, the whole thing. Oh my God. You are not basic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know. I know. But you know, who can say um, when we're all, you know, above 30 here. So yeah, we're know. just, we're just trying our best. <laughs> yeah. Just trying our best. Right. Maybe, maybe the Gen Z don't, they don't want to. You know, they don't want to think about the weather with the climate change. They don't believe in inclement weather. This is yeah, so like, no, no mind-blowing for me. I'm Or they might just say, what's the point? Because every 15 seconds, the weather's different because our client, because uh, we've destroyed it, my generation yeah. specifically. Right, right, so right. They're just like, it could be floods. It could be a drought. You know, yeah. best not to think about it. <laughs> Pack a suitcase and don't think about it. Right. Um, that's hilarious. And where can people find you? Uh, I'm at... He makes on Instagram and TikTok. And I'm also going to be performing in Santa Monica soon for the Very Asian Foundation, which is a nonprofit on February 25th. So check it out. Dylan, thank you so much for joining us. We'll put all of the links to all of your stuff in the show notes. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is great. You can find all things Dylan at dmakes, D-E-E-Makes.com. Liz, that's our show. It is our show. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Gretchen Sisson. And a reminder, you can purchase Relinquished when it drops February 27th and pre-order now at relinquishedbook.com. Did we make you smarter today? Make you laugh a little bit? Well, I don't think we made you laugh too much, but we did make you smarter. So maybe you want to show us some love by liking, subscribing, and giving us five stars. Plus, you can stay connected with us on social media at Abortion Front across all the platforms. With your help, we can get more people to learn about the assault on abortion access and you can get involved in the fight. 
Looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? We've got a five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion, at operationsaveabortion.com. And while you're there, check out our super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. This week's featured action is Faith Choice Ohio's virtual religion and repro training, February 7th at 7 p.m. Eastern. It's open to all, and this session will help you understand the history of religious pro-choice advocacy and the role modern religious voices play in securing abortion access and defending reproductive freedom in Ohio and all over the USA. That's right, I said securing. Registration will be found in our show notes and on the Activist Cal. Woohoo! Also, reminder, we're having all these extra cool abortion AF events, and so you should get tickets and show up. We have the REM Tribute Show with Michael Shannon this week in San Francisco and Minneapolis, and the San Francisco premiere of the AAF documentary, No One Asked You, February 9th. Tickets for both are in the show notes, as well as all the upcoming dates through the show. And next week's show is a fun one. We love it when there's a new abortion podcast, and lucky for us, Abortion superhero and friend of the show, Renee Bracey Sherman, and her writing partner, Regina Mahone, have launched an eight-part series on the secret history of abortion called The A-Files, and they talk with Moji to tell all of the secrets. It's a good convo. Join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy de Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. And finally, we leave you with abortion abolitionist and human barf bag, T. Russell Hunter, a man showing his whole ass as he chastises a fellow extremist because that guy doesn't hate women enough. That there should be a carve out um, that specifically protects the women that doesn't re- yeah. rely on yeah. the the judicial process or the judgment of a, of a prosecutor or a yeah. jury. It's granting them um, special murder rights is what we would call that. No, I, it's no, telling I, I the wouldn't. culture in our culture in our laws we're granting mothers special murder rights to do something that we think is murder, that we understand biologically as murder, that we understand morally as murder, but we're going to write into our laws special murder rights for you for anyone in this class. We're going to treat women with partiality over men. Men who abort right. their babies are going to get murder charges, but women who abort their babies are not. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.